and we're going to be in Revelations 21. I'm going to read a few verses with you. I want you to follow with me, and you can read out loud at home if you'd like. Revelations 21. It's very interesting. We are familiar with heaven. We have a concept of heaven. But if you ask the average person to tell you what they know about heaven, they kind of draw a blank there. They're really not sure what it's all about. And uh, we're going to look at that tonight. And um, those of you who have gone through discipleship, you kind of have a pretty good idea of that. But tonight we're just going to look at what the Bible says in Revelation 21 about heaven, about your future home. And uh, we want heaven to be your home. If you're watching my live stream tonight, you're not really sure that heaven's your home. We want that to be your home. And it's very fitting as we read through Revelation tonight that we've been spending a lot of time about the end times and the end of the world and the judgment to come. By the way, these are real judgments. This is not theory. This is not illusionary. This is real. This is, these are things that the Bible is telling us are going to happen. We're already seeing it unfold right now with pandemics and uh, just uh, adverse weather conditions and global warming and all these things happening in the world. I mean, there's a lot going on in our world right now. By the way, I don't know if you saw this, but they've closed up sections of Lake Tahoe recently because of bubonic plague problems. They've tested some squirrels and animals there that have been tested uh, positive for bubonic plague, and uh, they have found up in Brentwood, not very far from here, they found some, uh, some birds that, have been dead, that are dead that tested positive for West Nile virus. I mean, it's now come to the states here. And uh, things of that, are, are, that are happening around the world, these are not happening by accident. There's a timeline. And we must be very cognizant that God is greater, but God is also able. And as God's people, we want to, we want to be up to date about what God's Word has to say, and we want to be preparing ourselves for the days to come. Revelation 21, I want you to notice verse 9 with me. Verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues. And he talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And it had a wall, great and high. It had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. The wall of the city had twelve foundations. And in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked when he had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth foursquare. And the length is as large as the breadth. It's a cubic in size, if you would. And he measured the city with the reed, and with 12,000 furlongs, the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. He measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man that is of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was like of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manners of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh 
chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst, and the twelve gates were twi- and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun and the neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. The nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it, and the gates of it shall, there shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. They shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever work of the abomination or making the lie, but they that are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's join our hearts in prayer this evening as we consider these wonderful words we've read from Revelation 21. Heavenly Father, your word is authority, your word is sovereign. And we pray that the words of Christ now would speak to us in a very personal way, a very special way. Lord, it feels like just yesterday we started the series on Revelation. And I think for most Christians, it's a very intimidating book, very complex because of the many symbols. And yet, Lord, we thank you that you've given us understanding. And we pray tonight as we look at the prospect of heaven, the reality of heaven, the glory of heaven. Heaven being the home of the saved. Please, Lord, tonight, give us understanding. Please, Lord, speak to our hearts. Please, Lord, tonight, would you use this service and the study of heaven to bring someone who's not sure where they'll spend eternity into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you tonight ahead of time for all that you'll do. We pray these things of you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to imagine with me tonight as we start this study about being a first-time home buyer. I'm engaging a real estate agent to help you find the home of your dreams. For a starter home, it's what you can afford, what you feel that you can launch out with. I want you to imagine the real estate agent very carefully, meticulously taking you through the front door explaining to you the character of the house, when it was built, who the builder was, walking through the front entryway, describing the the construction of the house. Maybe it has a marble entryway or a hardwood floor entryway. Perhaps it has pillars above it. And he explains to you about all that. And he tells you to take careful note about the roofing. And perhaps it has shingle roofing or has tile roofing of some kind, fire retardant roofing. And he wants to be able to inform you about how old the roof is and how recently it was put on and whether it's fire retardant and all those kind of things. And then he starts walking through the flow of the house, walking through perhaps a living room 
room, leading you to a dining room area, leading you to a kitchen. And it tells you about all the upgrades that they've done in this home, how they've got uh, about the granite, t- granite top and all these type of things in the hood and a gas stove and, and the top-of-the-line stove and top-of-the-line refrigerator and the dishwasher and the, and the garbage disposal. And he walks around there and t- turns a corner and he tells you about the pantry on the side and he turns another corner and tells you about all the different bedrooms inside the house and which bedrooms have restrooms and where there's a, where's a, common, where's a common family restroom. And if it's two stories, he walks you up the stairs and takes you up the grand staircase. I mean, he's just describing this home and making it so that you feel like, man, I really want this home and I really feel like this is a place that I could call home. And he walks you through it and you see the new carpeting and it smells like a new house and it has a fresh paint smell and it has AC and thank God for AC tonight, amen. And it's got AC and it's got heating and central heating and, and if it doesn't, it's got, at least it's got something going on there. Maybe it's got some ceiling fans in it. And then he, he takes you to the back backyard where they go through a sliding door and you're probably going through the kitchen. You go to the backyard and everything's is immaculately landscaped and, and, your, and your wife is next to you and she says, oh, I love this area for a garden. And you look and say, wow, that lawn looks really good. And, and you imagine putting a, a grill out there and grilling some meats and things like that and spending the evening out there looking at the moon and the stars and things like that. And imagine one day having children, your children playing out there and you walk around that. And towards the end of that, you walk back through the house and you're walking through the kitchen and he takes you through a, a door and you're into the garage and you see a very clean garage that can house at least two cars and, and workspace where you can do some work things and a place for washer and dryer and all these. I mean, he's taking you around the home and you realize this is a place you feel like it's adequate in space. It's not too small. It's not too large. It's clean. It's manageable. It's a place you can call home. You'll feel very secure, very private about it. And you, you cock with your wife and you look at a few more homes. But that one home that you looked at with the real estate agent really spoke to you. It really appealed to you. It really felt like that is a place we can call home. I want to remind you tonight as we look at a subject like that, I remind you when we see heaven tonight, it's a place that you're going to call home. It's It's a place that you're not going to be disappointed about. It's a place that you're going to be glad you can say, it's my eternal home where I'll be forever and forever and forever. It's a place that you can say, it's wonderful. There's more than enough space for everybody that'll be there. The book of Revelation was written to give us a study of the end times. If you've grown up as a Christian, you've been a Christian for any number of years, the term end times probably doesn't even bother you. It's more elementary to you and academic just to hear the term end times. But as we watch world events unfold here in the United States of America and around the world, there are people very worried and very anxious, very concerned. Are we living in end times? Who would have imagined cities where literally, they haven't been called terrorists, but it's the same as terrorism where cities are literally on fire, burning, protests. I mean, the insurrections around our world and around our country, wars, climate changes, hurricanes, earthquakes. We had just finished service this morning. A couple of the men texted me. They said, did you feel the earthquake? I just noticed on my phone just a minute ago, I saw somewhere on next door, someone said, did you just feel the earthquake? And they talked about what city it was. If you don't know your Bible, you're trying to piece everything together. Pandemics and diseases and sicknesses and illnesses and riots and wars and earthquakes and all these calamities. And some people stay up at night anxious and worried about this. What about the economy? 
We've studied the book of Revelations. The Bible establishes for us in Revelation 1-2 that Revelations was written to show God's servants things that must shortly come to pass. Revelation was written to tell us what's in the future. I wonder this evening, do you know what's in your future? Do you know where you're going to be in your future? Now, I remind you as we get to Revelation 20, as we're in Revelation 21 and 22, as we've worked our way through that we've seen some very, very horrible judgments. Who would imagine laws that would be changing that are moving towards that? There's a bill before our governor right now. You may have gotten a message from me about this. There's a piece of legislation that's going to the governor's desk this week. I think it's SB 145 is the number. Is that the number, Brother Justin? 145. It is lightening the sentencing on child molesters, pedophiles. It's changing the definition where it's lightening it up, which when you read this, the text, the, the context of it, basically there, there's going to be more children molested. And some of them won't even wind up on Megan's Law. As a parent, a grandparent, if you're a parent, you ought to be concerned about that. Amen? You ought to be concerned about that. To even think that these legislators who are being paid by taxpayer money would dream up of a legislation like that. And I, I'm not even going to go about other things that, that are even worse that are sitting right now on the governor's desk. There's a myriad of things going on right now. They're just trying to slide right under the people's noses. They're trying to increase your property taxes right now and slide it right under your noses. I'm just saying right now, we look at all these things going on, you wonder, where is this all going to end to? I'm going to tell you what this evening. This world is not going to get better. The world is getting worse. The world is getting worse and worse because the Bible tells us where the love of many grows cold, the iniquity will continue to increase. And so as we look at the book of Revelation, it's reminding us this tonight, as we look at judgment after judgment and plague after plague and calamity after calamity and all these different types of things, it reminds us that every person has to face a decision. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. You see, when we leave this life, there's only one of two places a person is going to go to. There is no purgatory. There is no middle ground. There's either a heaven or there's hell. And I want to tell you tonight, God wants every person to go to heaven. God's will is that every person would be saved and go to heaven. And God wants every person to know that heaven can be gained and heaven can be their own. And so God let the Apostle John, as he wrote about all these judgments and terrifying things about economic collapses and, and the sky falling apart and the, red, the sun turning red and, and earthquakes and calamities and wars and all of these different kinds of things. He wanted to give us a word of encouragement because as God's people, we have heaven to gain. As God's people, we have heaven to look forward to in the days to come. We think about heaven from Genesis to Revelation. There are bits and pieces the Bible gives us about heaven. In the book of Psalms, the psalmist refers to it as Zion. Zion. China has a city called Xi'an. Xi'an actually is the word Zion. Somebody thought about the fact, let's call this city Zion. Paul referred to it as paradise. Jesus referred to it as paradise. Peter referred to it in 2 Peter 1, 1, 1 5 and 6. He, called it, he calls heaven an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and I like this phrase, reserved in heaven for you. 
reserved in heaven for you. Hey, that tells me something very important. God wants to reserve a place in heaven for you. My prayer tonight, before this service is over, that you'll make your reservation for heaven. Amen? How much can we tell you about heaven tonight? Well, I'll tell you as much as I can in a short space of time. But I'm reminded tonight about the famous explorer Marco Polo. He was on his deathbed. He was quite an adventurer. He was quite ahead of his time. He would probably people during his day called him a maverick. And he was on his deathbed during the 13th century, and many who did not believe in the things, the exploits he had and where he went to, they tried to get him to recant on everything he had said and spoken about. And he said, I can't recant. This is what he said. I can't recant about it. I can't turn back what I told you about the Orient, about Asia, and about China. He says, because you know what? I have not even told the half of what I've seen. And I think the best way to tell you this evening, in the brief time I have, I'm not even sure I'm going to be able to tell you the half of everything the Bible says about heaven. Look at our passage tonight. I want you to see heaven. I want you to notice tonight we're going to study about the society of heaven. I want you to notice tonight we're going to see the size of heaven. I want you to see tonight, we're going to see the structure of heaven. Are you ready tonight to go to heaven? Amen? You ready for a tour of heaven? Number one, I want you to see the promise concerning heaven. Take your Bible and turn to John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. The promise concerning heaven. Now, un unlike you and I who may make a promise and not keep it, God's promises are guaranteed. Amen? God makes a promise. He keeps his promise. He's never late. He's never tardy. And in John 14, writing to some discouraged disciples, he had to tell them a little about heaven because they were a little bit discouraged about the future, and we get that way too. And in John chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus described heaven this way. He said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, if you've never underlined that, you ought to underline that tonight. Jesus said about heaven, I go to prepare a place for you. For you, you singular. When he spoke to them, it was you plural, but I'm talking to you tonight. You singular. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. Look at verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. There where I am, there you may be also. Now, Jesus is telling us two things here. Number one, he's telling us that he was only on earth for a brief period of time. And the brief period of time that he was here, he came for one specific reason. He came as God's sinless son to do one thing. The most important thing in his mission was to die for your sins and mine. Because someone innocent, someone sinless, had to take your place and mine on the cross to die for our sins. And Jesus died on the cross. He shed his blood. And when he did so, the sins of the entire world were paid in full. Now, one of my greatest blessings is just having no debt. Being able to pay off debt, being able to pay off bills. When I get a credit card bill, being able to pay it off. I love the fact, I don't, I don't like being in debt. I just want to get rid of debt. In a few more years, I'll be done with all my debt. I'll be thankful for that. But I want to tell you what, the greatest debt you and I have is our sin debt. There's nothing you can do to pay off your sin debt. Your sin debt and my sin debt is too great. It's too big. There's not enough good works. There's not enough church we can go to. There's not enough we can do to atone or pay for our good works. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, he paid our sin debt in full. So number one, Jesus came to die for our sins. He was buried, but praise God, he rose again the third day to conquer death. And when Jesus died for us, he overcame sin, he overcame death, and he overcame sin. 
Satan. And that's shouting ground right there, amen. Now, he went to heaven. And sometimes we think, well, man, I'm here all by myself. I've got to, I'm on my own. You're not on your own. There's two things Jesus is doing for us that's in this promise. Two things he's doing for us in this promise. Number one, would you notice, Jesus is praying. What's he doing in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God? He's praying. Jesus is the model of a leader. He's busy. He's active. He's industrious. He's diligent. He's praying. It was important that Jesus had to send to heaven because in his ascension to heaven, he assumed his role as our great high priest. As our great high priest, the Bible tells us that he's, he's there making intercession for you and I. I want you to consider with me. You don't have to turn to him, but I want you to listen to me. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 to 25, it describes the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ praying for us. It says, but this man, because he continueth ever, that means he's eternal. Praise God, Jesus is eternal. Amen. If there's no other reason why you ought to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, aside from his death on the cross to you, it's the fact that he's eternal. He's not dead, he's alive, amen? But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Now, what did a priest do? Well, aside from the altar sacrifices, a priest prayed for the people. One of my greatest privileges I have is praying for the people of Heritage Baptist Church. One of my greatest privileges is meeting people and adding them to my prayer list. I'm thankful in the midst of COVID-19, we're still meeting a lot of people, and we're adding people to the prayer list. And there are days that go by, but even though I follow through a routine of a list, there, sometimes I forget somebody, and then the Lord puts them on my mind. I thought about several people yesterday, several people this afternoon, that I got on my list and started praying for them. And here the Bible says that Jesus has an unchangeable priesthood. Notice verse 25. It says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Now, that's a wonderful promise. Jesus is living in heaven making intercession for us. Hey, listen, the most wonderful thought, if you don't get anything out of this message tonight, is that Jesus Christ is praying for you. When you're down, when you're discouraged, when you feel like the world is crumbling on top of you, you feel like everything's falling apart, you, when you feel like you want to quit your job, when you feel like people bailed out on you, you feel disappointed, when you feel like things are very tough, thank God tonight, if nobody else is praying for you, Jesus Christ is praying for you. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. And listen, he's praying tonight for every Christian to be strong. He told Peter in, in, in Luke tw chapter 22, verses 31 to 32, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Hey, I want to give you some good news tonight, Christian friend and brother and sister in Christ. No matter who you are or where you're at in your spiritual walk with God or where you're at in your journey, I want to tell you tonight, Jesus Christ calls you and I out by name. He lifts our name up before our Heavenly Father there in heaven, and he calls you out. He doesn't say, Simon, Simon. He says, Alan, Alan. And he says, here, I'm praying for you that your faith would not fail. Listen, through a course of a day, you and I are going to go through temptations and trials and difficulties and heartaches and things. You know what Jesus is saying there? I know what you're going to face. I know the problem. I know the difficulties. I experienced them, but I didn't sin, but you're going to sin. So he said, I'm praying for you that your faith doesn't fail. Listen, some of you get in the place, you feel like you're going to throw in your handkerchief, you're going to throw in your towel. 
You feel like you don't want anything to do with church anymore. You feel like you want to get away from things. You're about to quit. I know some of you are discouraged because of COVID-19. You've been away from church for so long because you're afraid that everybody's got it, everybody uh, is infected and all these kind of things there. And the devil's playing with your mind. You're, you're thinking, well, I haven't been back for so long, so maybe nobody really cares. Nobody ever knows. I want to tell you tonight, we do care and we do know. And, but more than I care and I know, I want to tell you tonight, Jesus knows and Jesus cares. And Jesus is praying for you right now. Oh, Christian friend, he's praying for that your faith doesn't fail. Why? Because the greatest investment Christ has for you is that he died for your sins, but he wants you to live for him. He said in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and that he died for all that they which live should henceforth not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and gave his life for them. He's praying for Christians that they don't fail. He's praying for every person who's not put their faith in him. We would call you an unbeliever. He's praying for you that you get saved. He said in Hebrews 7.25, he said here, he said, he is able to save them to the uttermost of coming to God by him. Hey, I've met a few people along the way who said, Pastor, I don't think God can save me. They're so insecure. They did some bad things. I don't think God can save me. The Bible tells us he is able to save them to the uttermost. By the way, he says from the uttermost to the guttermost. Amen? I mean, that's the kind of Jesus we have. Jesus is praying for you. But notice in John 14, Jesus is not only praying for you and me, he's, he's preparing for you and I. In heaven, he's preparing a place for us. Now, notice the description he gives of heaven. He said, in my father's house. Now, he described heaven as his father's house, as a mansion, as a big house. In my father's house. Are many mansions. The King James Version tells us specifically, and colorfully, mansions. Other versions of the Bible will use the word Rooms. There's a big difference between a mansion and a room, amen? A mansion. Even the old English writers, the idea of a mansion. Spacious. Much room. When he, wrote, when he spoke the words in John 14, he was given the image of a Jewish bride and bridegroom. In a betrothal, it had all these the features of marriage, all the responsibilities of marriage, except one thing. They couldn't live together for one year. And her betrothal, the reason for that, why they couldn't live together, even though they went through, they made a covenant, and they had all the responsibility of marriage, but it's because the groom had to get a house ready for his wife. It was financial responsibility. And so he spent a year getting a house ready. For his wife. Now, I'm not sure all that entailed. All that entailed. I'm sure he had to find a location and he had to think about how they were going to, you know, all these different details. But listen, that they were both counting down the days. Back in those days, they would probably just take, a, take something and cross off the days. They were crashed. She was counting down the days because he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And then the day came when the ceremony would happen and he would lead an entourage and boy, it would be wonderful. He's dressed in his bridegroom garments and he's ready to go and he walks up to her home and she's waiting with the bridesmaids there and they're ready to follow this entourage, go back to the home that he's 
prepared. And listen, there's an excitement. I mean, nobody's more excited than that bride. And nobody's more excited about that groom, about going to a home that he's prepared for them. It's a place that they're going to call home. Yeah, it might be a little bit small, and it might be a little bit of crap, but it's their home. It's a starter home for them. It's a place that they call home. They're starting their home where husband and wife will come together and two will become one flesh. And then they will together, they'll build their home. And they know that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain to build it. But they go to that home. They say, it's our place that we call home. Jesus created that image and all those disciples who were married, like Peter, and who was married, and the experience that they thought about, yeah, I remember the day when I prepared a home for my bride. I remember the day I got ready for it. I came and got my wife, and we had an entourage, and we led, I led the way. We went to that home, and she was so happy when we walked through that threshold. We had a place that we called home. Listen, this morning, this evening, Jesus is preparing a place in heaven. He's preparing heaven for you and I. So when you get to heaven, you're going to be like a kid in a candy store. You're going to go there, and you're going to go, oh, this is better than I thought it would be. He's preparing a place for you and I. You see, Abraham had a concept of heaven. The Bible says in Hebrews 11.10, he looked for a city which has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. Hey, listen, Abraham's had such a firm idea about the preparation of heaven. He said this, he said, listen, I, I, I don't mind living in tents here in this world, but when I get to heaven, I'm not living in a tent anymore. I'm going to be living in a mansion, amen? I'm not going to be moving around in pup tent to pup tent to pup tent. I'm going to be living in a mansion. And the Bible says not only a mansion, he looked for a city where the chief architect and the general contractor combined was God himself, where the builder and maker is God. I'm telling you tonight, heaven is something to look forward to. There's the promise of heaven. Jesus Christ promised heaven for every person that will put their faith and trust in him. Heaven will ask you a question tonight. Are you going to heaven? Do you know heaven's your home? Will you escape the fires of hell and know for sure that heaven's your home tonight? Number two, there's the promise of heaven. Go back with Revelation 21. Let's look at the particulars of heaven. You know, you buy a home, you want to be, you want to have some general idea about the particulars. You ought to be asked the question, well, how old is this, this appliance? How old is the roof? Is the house insulated? Uh, is there a sprinkler system in the yard? Do the appliances work? And we're not sure they do this nowadays. Everybody just buys a home warranty just to cover their bases. They assume something's going to break down. They go to the home warranty hoping that that will take care of things. And the longer you're in that home, the longer you're paying attention to details. Our, when this church, this church we got all these blueprints that we, of this church from its very beginnings. And I'm thank, thankful to God that we've got men in our church who can read these blueprints and understand the electrical design and the building design and the character building and things of that nature. I mean, there, there are people that understand that. And, you know, we, when we get to heaven, God did not, God did not get, want, want us to go to heaven and not know about the particulars. He wrote specifically right, right here in Revelation 21 to give you and I the particulars concerning heaven. So I want you to notice some things that perhaps you never asked about, you never even thought about. I want you to notice the, the tangibleness of heaven. Notice, first of all, heaven is a spiritual domain. Look at verse 10 and 11. He says in verse 10, he calls heaven the great city. Now, if you've never read this in the Bible, heaven is the city of God. Amen? It's the heavenly Jerusalem. We read about that earlier in this chapter. It's the city of God. It's the great city. 
the holy Jerusalem descending out of the third heaven. It's special. Look at verse 11. He says, because of the glory of God. And the very first thing he tells us, having the glory of God. The most important thing about heaven is the very presence of God. Without the presence of God, heaven is worthless. Without the presence of God, heaven is not worthwhile. Having the glory of God. Now, what's the significance about that, Pastor Fong? Well, I want you to go back from the Old Testament for just a minute. In the tabernacle where they offered sacrifices for sin, the glory of God after the high priest who alone would go inside the Holy of Holies, that inner sanctum, he'd have a bowl and with hyssop, and in that bowl he'd have the blood of a freshly killed lamb of a first year. He would dip the hyssop in it, he'd saturate it, and then he'd sprinkle it on what was called the mercy seat. As he did so with great anticipation, the Jews looked forward to the glory of God. They called it the Shekinah glory, the glory of God descending upon that mercy seat. Years later, Solomon's temple would be built. And in 1 Kings 8, we read about Solomon praying over that temple and the glory of God coming down into that temple and filling it. There was something about the, the glory of God. You see, the, the, the glory of God was the outward manifestation, the outward manifestation of the inward essence of God, the outward manifestation of the, of the inward essence of God. In other words, God, 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 you can't see God, but God made himself visible, if you would, through his glory. He came down such a way. I mean, it was so, it was so, uh, it was so intriguing. Moses said, Lord, show me your glory, and he wanted to see it. Well, in the Old Testament, that was just something that the Jews, when they saw the glory of God, it brought tears to their eyes, and it encouraged their hearts, and when the priest saw it, it strengthened his faith. Now we get to the New Testament. What about the glory of God in the New Testament. Well, the glory of God in the New Testament is found in the local New Testament church. That's why we have church. That's why church is more than essential. Church is a commandment. Church is the house of the living God. It's the pillar and ground of truth. Church is a place where we worship God. Church ought to be the most important place in the life of a believer. Look at Ephesians 3.21. It says, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages world without end. Listen, God's glory is in the church. When we sing the hymns, his glory is manifested. When we have prayer meeting time, his glory is manifested. When we're at preaching time like we are right now, his glory is manifested. The Bible says, unto him be glory in the church. We've had some services in the past. My mind is going back right now. We've had some services in days gone by where we knew God met with us. And I believe God meets with us every service. But we've had some service. We knew that God was there. At the end of the preaching, there was just a holy hush. At the end of a Lord's table, there was a holy hush. At the end of a baptismal ceremony, there was a holy hush. There was just something about it that we knew that the glory of God, God's very presence had met with us there. I'm saying today, as we get to heaven, there's something about all of eternity that the glory of God will fill and encompass all of heaven there. Especially because of its light. Look at verse 11 again. Having the glory of God in her light was like unto stone, most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now I want you to fathom that with me tonight for just based on what's here. Way up in the northern hemisphere of our world. Way up in the northern hemisphere. There are places at certain times of the year where there's almost no night at all. In some cases, there is no night. It's lighted throughout the day, 24 hours. 
Little to no light. Look at verse 11. Heaven is lit up for all of eternity. In fact, look at verse 25. The Bible says, And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. Glory to God, there's no night in heaven. Amen? It's lighted all the time. Where is the source of light? Well, I'm thankful to tell you we don't have to worry about electrical power and utility companies and, and the sun and the moon and the stars which God made. You know where the light is? The light is Jesus Christ. God himself, the light, the light is Jesus Christ. No wonder it adds great meaning to where Jesus said in John 8, 12, when he said, I am the light of the world. Hey, I have better news than that. He's more than the light of the world. He's the light of all of heaven, amen? He's gonna light up heaven. Heaven will be lit up all the time. You won't have need of darkness. You won't have need of sleep. You won't have to worry about night. You don't have to worry about darkness. Why? Because all of heaven's lit up. And he describes it in verse 11, it is light unto a stone most precious, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The glory of God is the light of heaven. God is light, and in him is no darkness all. Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Hey, we have, we can, we can rejoice this morning because this evening, because when we consider heaven, we consider this spiritual domain, it is a place that is well lit for every one of God's people. It's a spiritual domain. Lights tell us there's safety. Lights tell us there's light. The other night, I, uh, you know, I, I just, it's hard for me to imagine. It's already September and it's gotten dark so quickly now. I can remember right around the, right towards the, the, I think the middle, the end of June and July, and I, uh, you know, where, where it was getting dark right around 9.15, 9.30, and, and for a good part of the summer, I did, got back to running during, the, during this COVID-19 time, so trying to get back to running to help my, my cholesterol and things like that, so I, I did a lot of my running late at night. I would go to like 8 o'clock, 8.30, things like that, and, and so I noticed as it started getting dark, I had to kind of readjust my schedule and things, so the other night, it was, I think, about 7.45, I told my wife, hey, I'm going to go out, I'm trying to get a quick 40-minute run in, and I went outside there, and I went up a hill there, and I, and I went up another hill and I was starting to come back down. Now it's complete dark. And I was looking at the street. There There's this one street with me. On my right side, there was no light. On the left side, the light was out. And I was looking at this, 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 this gate, this gated area where this fence was. Uh, excuse me, not a gate, but where a fence was. And I saw three animals there, and they looked like large German shepherds. I said, man, that's a pretty big German shepherd. Looks like he's about my height. I took another look. I was about 100 feet away, maybe 100, 150 feet away. It was, a, it was a deer family. And one of them was a buck with horns about that big. And I thought, oh, boy, I better not get that close. Amen. And I saw these, this deer family there. And it was, just, it, was, it was very dark. And I couldn't see very well. Hey, I want to tell you something. In darkness, you can't see very well. In darkness, it's hard to see. You need light. But thank God in heaven, you'll be able to see. And thank God in heaven, there's safety. You want to be where it's lit up. I go running at night. I don't see very well. I want to be where it's lit up. And thank God in heaven, everything's well lit. There's safety. There's sight. But I have better than that. In heaven, Heaven, there's salvation because everybody in heaven is a saved person. Amen. But notice, secondly, would you notice the splendid details? Quickly. Would you notice in verse 12, he talked about a wall? The wall is great and high. Verse 17, he gives us the specifics of this wall. He said it's 144 cubits according to the measure of a man. 144 cubits is 216 feet up, or if you would, 15 stories. That's a pretty good-sized wall. And why is it a wall? Is it to keep people out? Not really. Keep people in? Not really. It's a gated community, Amen. But a wall has a significance tonight. You see, it reminds us that you can't get into the heavenly city unless you come through a gate, unless you come through a door. 
It's a walled city. Perhaps God puts a wall around it to remind the devil, you'll never have, you'll never come into here. You're never going to bother the people here. Sin cannot come in here. He puts a wall up there. And so this wall is there to remind us that there's a door, there's an entryway. Listen, where there's a wall, uh, where there's a wall protecting something, you have to have somebody who lets you in. Thank God tonight, the person that lets us in that city is Jesus Christ. He is the door. He said this in John 10, 9, I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father except through him. I remind you tonight, no thief is going to climb over that wall. I remind you tonight that nobody's going to find through subterfuge to come over the wall. There's only one way in that city. It's a high-walled city. And the only way in that city is when Jesus Christ opens that door and lets you in. Listen, there's a wall in that city, but there's something else. What you notice is there are gates. The Bible says in verse 12, and there's a wall great and high, and it had 12 gates. On the names of every one of these gates is a representation of the 12 tribes of Israel. God wanted to give, wants to give significance to his Old Testament plan that Israel, his chosen people, were to be his messengers during that time. 12 gates. Did you notice specifically he tells us about there are three gates at each direction. Now he wanted us to know that. On the east, on my side, the east, three gates. The north, three gates. The south, three gates. And the west, three gates. Remember, gates are entryways. Gates are entryways. I want to stretch your imagination for just a minute. What's God trying to tell us? I believe each gate speaks to us about the different types of people who come to Jesus Christ as Savior. First is the east gate is where, on the east is when the sun rises. And perhaps the east gate is speaking to us about those who early in their life receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. I still get excited and enthused, brother and sister in Christ, when the children of our church, a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a nine-year-old, eight-year-old, brother, brother A.J.'s here tonight with his son Boaz. I still remember brother, jo, brother A.J. I still remember Boaz came to me as a little boy. He said, Pastor Fong, I received Jesus Christ my Savior. That's a great day, amen. I'm thankful for many of you who have written me and messaged me and told me, Pastor, I want you to know my son or my daughter just received Jesus Christ as Savior. I'm thankful for parents who were at the end of a morning service when we used to shake hands things before pre-COVID-19. We'd come, they'd bring their kid by. And they wanted me just to go through the questions, just to ask them very compassionately, did you really receive Jesus as Savior? Did you know you're saved? I was, I'm thinking about the testimony we heard of, of uh, Isaac Alicon. Isaac was a, just a six-year-old boy. I said, Isaac, listen, I know you want to get baptized. I said, I, I want to know your salvation testimony. Tell me why a person has to get saved. Listen, that little boy told me very articulately what it means to be saved and how to get saved. I mean, I, 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 I think he did a better job than most adults could do on that. He just explained so carefully, and he explained it with feeling, and he fe explained it with emotion about how he knew he was a sinner at five or six years of age, and how his father and his mother explained him the need for getting saved, and how Jesus died on the cross for his sins, and he 
spoke about it being so real like a preacher speaking about salvation. And Isaac Alicorn told me, listen, I, I realized I was a sinner. And he realized, he said, I realized I was going to go to hell. And he said, as a five-year-old, six-year-old boy, I didn't want to go to hell. I didn't want to spend eternity there. I wanted to go to heaven. I want to be where my family's going to be. Hey, listen, if there's no other reason to get saved besides the fact you need to get saved, it ought to be the fact that you're going to have, you might have family members in heaven. And you want to be in heaven with those family members. East gate, those who received Jesus Christ early life. But then he talks about the north gate. The north gate, you think about the north, the northerly winds which blow, which are cold and chilly and wintry. You know, there's some people, intellectually, it's very hard for them to get saved. They do. It's very hard for them to get saved. On one extreme, you have the person who's extremely intellectual. They've been ingrained in the philosophies and teachings of this world. They want to know, prove to me the creation, the, what, creation from the Bible. Prove to me that Jesus Christ died for them. I mean, I, I think of someone like Lee Strobel. If you haven't read his book, The Case for the Creator, you ought to get Lee Strobel's book, The Case for the Creator. It'll help you understand a man who, who was kind of agnostic, atheistic in his way, in his thinking. He, he started to research himself, and he came to the realization that there is a God, and there was a Christ that died for him, and he received Jesus Christ as Savior, and he's one of the great apologists of our time. Or you might think about someone like, like uh, Josh McDowell who went around the college campuses back during my time in the eight, 70s and 80s and 90s. He went around the college campuses and uh, he just felt like back in the 70s he said there wasn't a God. And someone challenged him and said, Josh, what you need to do is sit down. Instead of you trying to refute us, why don't you prove to us we are wrong? And so he started getting into the study about Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead. And the more he studied, the more he studied, he started to realize that the resurrection was real and Jesus Christ was a real person. And Josh McDowell became a born-again believer. And Josh McDowell wrote one of still the classic books of our day, the evidence that demands a verdict that helps you understand that Jesus Christ can't save you from your sins. They're not the only ones. I think about a man who just went home to be the Lord, Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias is one of the great intellectuals of our day. I mean, you, have to, you can't read Ravi Zacharias quickly. <laughs> He's not a fast-reading book. Ravi Zacharias debated on major university campuses and brought people to Jesus Christ. There's some people who have a little bit different time because of intellectual. But then there's the other extreme. There's some just because of their upbringing, maybe their personality. They'll say something like this, I just don't get it. I think about one of our dear precious ladies in our church. Our youth fellowship, Brother Aaron Lee, was the head sponsor that time. And he had just made the, the transition was just made to Brother Aaron. And we had a young lady started coming, I think she was about ninth or 10th grade, and She's one of our great members of the church. And, and, and Brother Aaron, his wife, Vivian, kept her hand and explained to her how to get saved, how to get saved, but she just couldn't, she couldn't grasp it. And Brother, Brother Aaron is a pretty, he's, he's like a pit bull. He pretty much goes after you. If he, he wants to get the gospel, he goes after you there, okay? Brother Aaron got, got a little, just didn't know what to do. And he said, Pastor, can I come see him, bring her in? I said, yeah, bring her by the office. He brought her by. I mean, th this one went on for about, about a year and a half. He'd bring, keep bringing her by, and she'd come in. I'd ask, my wife and I'd ask her to come in, and she'd sit there, and she would just be silent. And she wasn't being, she wasn't being difficult or anything like that. She just couldn't get her mind wrapped around it. A day came when that dear, precious lady, she, it kind of came all together. And she received Jesus' Savior. You know what? She's one of our, she's a, she's one of our great workers and, and helpers in the church. But there's some people like the North. They get saved. 
But it's hard for them to get saved because it just, whatever, whatever difficulties, there's, there's people who get saved in spite of all those difficulties. And then you think about the South. Oh, the South, there's the southerly winds, which are warm winds. There's some people that get saved very quickly. Their hearts are tender. They're emotional. They, they just, they get it. They receive it. They hear the gospel and they weep and they cry and they said, I never knew there was a God in heaven that loved me and he sent his son to die for my sin. They just get it. They're, they're people that are just, in their emotions, they come easy to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, we have those who get saved early in life. We have those, it may be difficult, but they get saved. We have those who, their, their hearts are very tender and they receive Christ. They receive Christ. It's not hard for them to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. And then we have the West. The west is where, the east is where the sun rises, but the west is where the sun sets. Hey, there are those who get saved. They get saved later on in life, but bless God, they get saved, amen? Thank God for 11th hour salvation. Thank God for people like William Ho's father who was, who, had diff, who was hearing impaired and all these difficulties, and he almost died at the hospital bed. And I still remember that Maggie and William and I, they had written out the gospel plan in this big a font size for him, and we tried the best we could. And God gave Mr. Ho one surge of strength. I mean, he was hanging by death's door. He had one surge of strength, and he read the gospel, and he held Maggie's hand, and he trusted Jesus as his Savior. Thank God. There may be the sun setting, but they get saved before the sun sets. Their gates, their foundations, look at verse 14. He just said the wall <coughs> city had 12 foundations. Hey, I got some good news for you. It does, you don't have to worry about earthquakes in heaven because earth, heaven is well foundationed. And it's not foundation on cement. Listen, it's foundation better than that. It's foundation with precious stones. Look in verses 19 and 20. He describes all these different precious stones. And every one of the foundation bears the name of the 12 apostles. Hey, thank God that Jesus Christ is the solid rock on which we stand. Thank God we have a firm foundation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, this city has its walls and it has its gates and it has its foundation. But look at verse 21. It has a street. And what you notice this evening, its street is made of gold. Amen. Hey, listen, on earth, on earth, people worship gold and walk all over God. In heaven, we walk on gold and worship God. Amen? Why would you not want to go to heaven? Streets are paved with gold. And he describes that gold as being like, uh, as transparent as glass in verse 21. I want you to see something else. We see the spectacular details, but notice significant dimensions in verse 16. He said the city lieth four square, it's cubic. We're told about the breadth and the length and the height of it, they're all equal. 12,000 furlongs. I'm going to translate that for you real quickly because we need to get moving. Heaven is 1,500 is 1500 miles, 1,500 miles, not feet, in each direction. Now remember, it's cubic. 1,500 miles in each direction, when you think about area, heaven is huge. 
Heaven is big. And why did God want us to know that? Because he wanted us to know this. Heaven is not going to have a shortage of space. Heaven will have enough capacity for everyone that's saved. Hey, there's enough room for somebody else to get saved. There's room for more people to come to heaven. I love hearing about evangelistic crusades where the gospel is preached and scores of people get saved. I'm thinking about the last time I was in the Philippines and our good friend Dr. Lorena had a big crusade for four, for four Sundays in the San Pedro area there, the Laguna area there, and thousands got saved. In the church alone where I preach, and the church where Brother Justin preached, there were thousands that got saved. But to think about an entire province where people got saved, where there may have been as many as 50,000 people that trusted Christ as the Savior with all the different places, gospel preaching stations. I mean, I, you th when you think about it, you think, is there enough room? We think about this. If we bring all these people, we're concerned. Where are we going to put them? Do we have enough room? I have good news for you. In heaven, you don't have to worry about spacing or capacity or size. There's more than enough room in heaven. Heaven is huge. Heaven has got space. Heaven is wonderful. Heaven is glorious. Number one, we see the promises. We're moving fast. Number two, we see the particulars. Number three, go with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Would you notice the people quickly? Hebrews 12, verses 22-24 is probably a very overlooked passage concerning heaven. In verse 22, the writer, who I believe is Apostle Paul, spoke of heaven as being Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. I mean, well, long before Revelation was written, he already told us about all that here. Number one, there are angels in heaven. Thank God for angels. You ought to thank God for angels. God is described here in verse, in verse 23 as God, the judge of all. Jesus is there. Notice verse 24. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. He's spoken of as our mediator, as our savior, as the, as the one between God and man. And it speaks about the blood of Jesus Christ there. You know, Protestants don't like to hear about that. But I'm going to tell you right now, the blood of Jesus Christ is eternal. The blood of Jesus Christ is in heaven. The Bible says, the blood of Christ speaketh better things of Abel. It says, what does that mean? Well, Abel, when he was murdered by his brother Cain, because Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, you know what happened? Abel's blood cried out from the ground for God to execute justice. He said, I need justice, I need justice. Abel's blood cried out for justice. But the blood of Jesus Christ was shed on the cross for every sinner. It cries out, mercy, mercy, mercy. Listen, when you come to Jesus Christ, he doesn't come to you to judge you. When you come for salvation, he comes to you to give you mercy because he wants to save you. But here's the important thing you want to see. Notice the description here. The general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven, all who have received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior since Jesus died and rose again from the dead. Now, that tells us two things. Number one, when you get saved, God wants you to be a member of the local New Testament church. That's what he's telling you there. That's why he called the church, the general assembly, church of the living God. God wants every saved person to be a member of a biblical church. Why? It's a privilege to be a member of the church. Why? Because he describes it this way in 1 Thessalonians 4. When the rapture occurs, he's taking the church up. All the saved go up. Thank God this morning, this evening, you know Christ the Savior. You'll be in heaven. He talks about another group of people. Notice later on, he talked about in verse 20, 23, he talked about the spirits of just men made perfect. Now, who's that? 
I believe the spirits of just and made perfect are Old Testament believers who got saved. I think that's Abraham, and I think that's like Enoch, and I think that's Elijah, and Moses, and Samuel, and David, and all those Old Testament believers. Hezekiah, we preach about this morning. And the spirits of just men made perfect. All the Old Testament believers, John the Baptist. But I believe it also refers to those who were martyred during the, during the tribulation period. All those who get saved during the tribulation, and they're martyred, and they're killed for the faith. I believe it includes them. He calls them the spirits of just men. Why just men? Because we're justified by faith. Justification means when we get saved, God treats us just as if we never sinned. We're called just men made perfect. You cannot be perfect on your own, and you cannot be perfect by going to church, and you cannot be perfect by having good work. The only way we can be perfect before God is through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, knowing that we're saved. He makes us perfect. He makes us right. Why? Because he makes us just in the eyes of God. And I just want to tell you tonight, who are the people in heaven? Saved people are in heaven. Amen. Are you going to heaven? Is heaven your home? Are you saved? Finally, tonight I want you to notice one last thing we're done. Quickly. We see the promise of heaven. We see the particulars of heaven. We see the people of heaven. Would you notice the priority of heaven? What's going to make heaven great? The streets of gold? The wall, the gates, by the way, the gates, each one has a per, is, is, resembles a pearl. There's a significance about that. A pearl is made when an oyster gets a piece of sand inside of it and it starts to irritate that oyster. And so it, 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 it uh, secretes a, a, a something out of its gland, a salute, some kind of a, it, there's a secretion that comes out of its gland that starts to wrap itself around that, 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 that grain of sand. And over time, it becomes a very nice, very nice pearl, but it doesn't come without a price because there's, there's cutting and there's wounding and there's hurt that goes on with that oyster and forming that pearl. It's a reminder to us of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ's death on the cross was not pretty. It was not easy. It was ugly. It was hurtful. It was painful. Jesus was wounded and hurt, and he bled and shed his blood for us. But yet, we look at those gates in heaven, and every time in heaven we'll look at those pearly gates, it reminds us of the wounds of Jesus Christ. It reminds us of his shed blood. It reminds us that he died for our sins. It'll bring tears to our eyes up in heaven that Jesus suffered for you and I. And I want to remind you tonight, as we think about that, now we think about what we're reading here. What's going to make heaven precious? Is it going to be the walls? Is it going to be the pearls? Is it going to be the gates? Is it going to be the foundation? No. The most important thing about heaven is God himself and Jesus himself. man went to see his doctor. Actually, he asked his doctor to come see him. The doctor, back in the country, the country days, he walked over there with his dog, and the man, the doctor said, can I bring my dog? And he says, yeah. And he says, why don't you put him downstairs in the basement so he doesn't run around my house? So they had those downstairs basements, so he opened the door and let the dog down. The man was not doing very well, and he asked his, he asked his doctor, he says, doctor, I don't know if I'm going to live very long. He says, I'm a little scared about, about what's going to happen there. And he says, and he says uh, doctor, could you, could, you tell me, could you tell me about heaven? What's heaven all about? He was a good Christian doctor. Doctor did not expect that question from his patient. He said, well, let me think for a minute. And as the doctor started speaking, that dog which was downstairs, which had gone down the stairs, had heard the doctor's voice and came back up the stairs, but the door was shut. And the dog, as dogs do, if you know anything about dogs, that they're really are affected of their owner, the dog took both his paws and started clawing at the door. <laughs> started making this noise at the door, and going, making the dog noises. And the doctor said, do you hear that noise? The man said, yes. He says, your dog. He said, oh, listen. I left him downstairs, but 
My dog has grown impatient. He's come up because he's heard my voice. He has no notion now that he's down there. What's really on the other side of the door? But he knows one thing. His master's on the other side of the door. And he just knows that if my master's on the side of the door, I want to be with my master. And I'll remind you something. We, you know, there's a, it seems like heaven's so far away. And it feels like heaven may not be near. But listen, we know God is there. There's just something about the fact that God is there. There's a longing in our heart. And our heart. And I want to tell you this tonight as we close. I want every Christian that's watching this message tonight to think about this. That you ought to have a great longing and desire, an earnest desire in your heart to want to be in heaven, to want to be with God, to want to be with the very presence of God, that you look forward day in and day out. I can't wait to be in heaven. I can't wait to be with my Savior there. Verses 22 to 24, everything about those verses about Jesus Christ. In verse 22, he's our holy of holies. In verse 23, he's the light of the city. In verse 24, he's the center of worship. Heaven, the gates will never be shut. That's significant because in those days, the gates of a city, as the sun started to set, they would close the gates for fear of people coming in and to keep people from going out. Listen, in heaven, you can come, come and go freely. You don't have to worry about anything like that. He said the gates will never be shut and there's no night there. Christian, are you living for heaven? Are you looking forward to heaven? C.S. Lewis said this, he said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, they have become so ineffective in this. And that was written by C.S. Lewis when he wrote the book Mere Christianity, probably 50, 60 years ago. You buy a home, you look forward to living in that home and occupying it. Now that you're saved, you ought to look forward to heaven. You ought to look forward to spending eternity with our God and our Father there. Last thing I want to say, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? You might be someone tonight, you're not 100% sure. I want to tell you tonight, God loves you. God wants you to go to heaven. God wants you there more than anything else. God wants you to know for sure that heaven's your home. And I've got good news for you. Tonight, you can be certain that heaven is your home. Tonight, you can be 100% sure that you're saved, you're born again to God's family, and you're going to heaven because it's by faith in Jesus Christ alone we can go to heaven. You say, well, that sounds so simple. Yeah, because it's not by anything we do. It's what God has already done for us. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. A man by the name of Jack Arnold was a preacher. In 2005, as he was preaching in his church out in Orlando, Florida, his text was Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he made this statement. He was standing there and he said, as long as God has work for me to do, I'm immortal, but if my work is done, I'm, I, I'm out of here. He made that statement. He clutched his Bible to his chest like this. Watch me and we're done. He said, I'm out of here. And he clutched his Bible to his chest. And he says, and when I'm in heaven, and he dropped his Bible, he held the pulpit, and he fell over it. And literally, he said those words, when I go to heaven, the Lord took him home to heaven right there on the spot. His son heard about that. They quoted him in the Chattanooga Times. 
the Chattanooga, Tennessee Times, about his father's passing. It was all over the news back in the southern part of our country about Jack Arnold going to heaven. Heaven was on his lips. And this evening, I want to invite you tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, would you accept him tonight? Would you call on the name of the Lord to save you? Would you make sure that you have a place in heaven reserved for you? I have a place reserved in heaven for me. My family, all my family members that are saved, have a, have a, they have a place reserved in heaven for them. I have hundreds of church members in Heritage Baptist Church. They have a place in heaven reserved for them. There are thousands of people I've met over the years who have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, and they're still in church and living for God. But listen, when they put their faith in Christ, they have a place reserved in heaven for them. Today, you can have a place reserved in heaven for you. Here's how. The Bible says, whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm going to help you tonight. I want to help you make sure that you avoid the judgment to come. I want to help you make sure that you don't go through that tribulation period that the book of Revelation talks about. I want you to help make sure you don't go through the end, the end time, the end of the world situation. I want you to make sure that you escape hellfire. I want you to make sure tonight that heaven's your home. And here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to lead you in prayer and help you to know for sure today that you're saved.